turn to Joshua chapter 24. I preached from uh, this passage last week, Joshua 24, concerning a message, uh, choose you this day whom you will serve. I want to bring a different message this morning or tonight titled, What God Has Done For Us. It's actually overwhelming and when you consider on a personal level all that the Lord has has done for us, all that the Lord has done for me. But Joshua 24, we'll begin reading in uh, verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. And if you remember um, last week, I pointed out how the flood here, when it says the flood, it's actually uh, a great river. And it's speaking of the river Euphrates. And so he's speaking, your fathers dwelt back in Mesopotamia on the other side of the Euphrates in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And we'll just stop there as we go down through this passage. We'll go down through verse 14, but I just want to want to pause on each aspect as, as Joshua's going through all that God did for them. In these first few verses, we can see that the only difference between Abraham and Nacor was that God chose him, and God called him, and took him from the land of his fathers and led him. We see that here in verse 3. He says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood. And led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. When you look at that, you realize how much was Abraham involved in this? Now, Abraham lived by faith, but it was even God that gave him faith. God, if God would not have called Abraham, he would have been just as lost as his brother Nacor. But God so chose in his eternal plan to call Abraham. There was nothing worthy in Abraham. There was nothing worthy that God noticed, oh, here is a lovely couple. I'm going to create, they're so wonderful, I'm going to create a nation out of them. No, it's simply, this passage is all about what God has done for his people. And so he says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him. He led him throughout all the land of Canaan. And you think about when you read and you consider the life of Abraham, he was following God. That is living by faith, is not knowing exactly what tomorrow holds, but God has led me, God has promised me um, all these different things, and so I'm going to follow. And so, but God says, I led him. And as I think of that, I almost think of God leading him by the hand taking him by the hand and leading him through all that. And it says God multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Abraham and Sarah were unable to have children through their own ability. But when she was past the age of having children, God gave them Isaac. You remember they tried to do things their way. And uh, it didn't work out very well. God wasn't pleased with that. But God gave them 
Isaac. And then in verse 4, he's going on. He says, And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. So we notice in this verse that God gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And then consider Esau. Even if Esau didn't recognize it or not, it didn't change the fact that God gave him. God was uh, good to Esau. He says God gave Esau Mount Seir. I'm sure Esau thought at the end of his life what great things he had accomplished. When you read the genealogies of Esau, he became, he became mighty. He had a lot of wealth. And, uh, but it says that God gave Esau Mount Seir. I can imagine that the descendants of Esau thought that they were most blessed by their gods. They didn't worship the, the God of Jacob. Um, I'm sure that they thought that they were blessed. They were established. And then they looked at Jacob and his descendants. I know that Esau's descendants must have looked down on Jacob. Jacob, what a miserable fare compared to our father Esau, who has established us. And we have all of this, all these earthly possessions, and we're strong. And what happened when the famine came? Jacob had to run down to Egypt. Jacob is a nobody. But God was involved in Jacob going down into Egypt. God says, I gave Esau Mount Seir to possess it. He had a permanent dwelling here. Well, Jacob was a vagabond. He was a pilgrim. Isn't it better to be a pilgrim and a vagabond here for God and have God actually involved in our life than to have a permanent dwelling and yet perish? What does it profit a man if he loses... uh, if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul. God brought Jacob down into Egypt, and there they became a nation of people. God brought Joseph into power in such unlikely, if not impossible way. When you consider how Joseph was sold by his brethren, went into slavery, ended up in prison, became second in command in Egypt, and then Jacob went down into Egypt after his son was second in power. And so... Uh, What a great thing it was how God gave them a place of protection and raised them and brought them up as a nation. In Genesis 50, 19, it says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, they thought that he would kill them. And uh, he says, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant unto good, to bring it to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. If we go back to our main passage in Joshua 24, the next verse, let's consider. He goes on and he says, I sent Moses also. And I have here in bold, or you can underline. If you go through this passage and everything that God says he did. Remember when Joshua began speaking, he said, thus saith the Lord. And then the Lord is saying, I gave, I did, I did. And uh, in this uh, verse 5, he says, I sent Moses also and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came into the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen into the Red Sea. I want to look at three different passages in Exodus. If you'll turn back to Exodus 
We'll begin in uh, chapter 2. And I just want to look at more detail of what it was, how that God uh, visited his people and brought them out. Uh, In Exodus chapter 2, first we'll see that God sent Moses and Aaron and plagued Egypt when the people of Israel were helpless against their oppressors. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now go to Exodus 3 and verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, Draw nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. And notice the wording of this here in verse 8. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large and flowing land with milk and honey. Unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites. And the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In this we see God is come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. But just like God does today, God uses means. God chooses to use people. And the first thing is that God heard the cry of those poor lost people people, if you will, you could say those poor lost sinners in their bondage and in their oppression. And God heard their cry. He says, I, I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And then he says, I am come to deliver them. But what does he do? The first thing he does is he sends them a man. He sends them Moses and uh, to help deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It's God doing it, but he uses people. And of course, if we know the story um, It's amazing as you look down through the word of God, how when God works, he works through people. And so uh, he begins, he sends Moses to Pharaoh. And then in verse 7, oh, in verse 7 of uh, Joshua 24, he says, And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And you dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And so we're familiar um, with, this, with the story of how the Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh chased the children of Israel, and they thought surely they were dead. And we see, we know how it is that 
um, the Lord fought for them. In, in uh, Exodus 14, in verse 13, it says, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still. And see this, and this is as they're standing on the shore of the Red Sea. And they know that they're dead. He says, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thy hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. You notice how Moses told them that the Lord's going to deliver you this day? And yet the Lord had not actually told Moses what to do. Moses just believed that the Lord was going to deliver him or deliver them. And we go back to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 8. As we continue on looking at what it is that God has done for uh, the Israelites. He says in verse 8, And I brought you unto the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand that you might... Ye might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sit and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam, therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. In verse 13, or verse 11, you went over Jordan and came into Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you built not, and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards which you planted, you do not eat. And so we come now from this being an overall history reminder of what God had done for their fathers. Now it's literally, this is what God has done for you. They are present tense, eating, living in these cities, uh, eating of these gardens, and all these things that they did not have to plant, did not have to put in the hard work. When you consider even... In America, it was a blessed time when we could expand westward. And my, my great-grandparents um, homesteaded in southeast Colorado. And it was, my granddad wrote a little book called 75 Years on the Homestead. And he, went out, he was about 10 years old when they, when they went out there. But um, they went out in a wagon from Oklahoma, and they had a um, homesteading going on in the, I think it was around 1908 or 1910, somewhere in there. And uh, um, anyway, when they showed up, they just went out and it was literally like they would tell them, so there's still a few plots of land over here and over here. And you would just go, dr drive around, it would take a long time, you know, ride around <laughs> and go check out this piece of property or this piece of property and see which one you wanted. And if it's what you wanted, first come, first serve, and you got your homestead. And so they ended up, he tells a story about how his dad went and, and he thought that he was going to get this one section and he didn't get it but they said well you really need to go check out there's this one over here and they went over and they checked it out and they're like we better take it while we can and so they took it 
And just out of this prairie nothing, if you're familiar at all with southeast Colorado, I mean, it's just flat land. If you get up on a windmill, you can see for 40 miles. And it's just seeming nothing there. And back then, there really was nothing there. And they ended up building. But it took a long time. In his, in his book, he talks about the process of how at first they lived in a tent and there wasn't timber. You couldn't, it wasn't like when you moved up here and you could cut down timber and build a house. They had, they had dugouts. So they would dig into the ground, find somewhat of a slope, and then dig partly into the ground, and half of your house is underground and so forth. And so that dugout was still there. I remember uh, when I was a youngster, we would go. They had, it, had turned it into a pool room and, and whatnot. And we'd go over there and shoot pool and stuff. But they'd preserved it, this old uh, dugout. But um, just the hard work and years and years that it takes to cultivate that crop in all the years of uh, hard labor, having to work other jobs because the ground was so bad, it wouldn't provide enough to live on. It took a long time to get it to where it was productive. But that's not how it was for the Israelites. These people didn't move into this, this promised land and then have to go to work. They went in, overtook the land, and it was already a land flowing with milk and honey. What a blessing it was for them. God fought their fight for them. And they went in and then they just possessed the land. They didn't um, uh, have to put in the hard work. And so God is reminding them that even as of right now, you're not having to do, it's all me that has provided for all this. And then Joshua concludes with this theme here in verse 14. Now therefore... When you consider all that God has done for you, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. I can't help note here the similarity with the words of Christ to the woman of Samaria. When He told her, The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And Joshua is telling them this. He, he doesn't stop with serve Him in sincerity and truth. The children of Israel were quick to say, oh, we'll serve God. Oh, we know what God has done for us. But yet they still had their, closet, their, their gods in the closet. You know, they would still, right. on, uh, on, out loud... They would say, oh, we'll serve God. But they still were dabbling in idolatry. Mm-hmm. And so he says, serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. And he goes on, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. There's nothing for which Israel could say they had done it. Nor could they say, many of these people, they had their false gods. And they could not say that their false gods had done anything for them as well. I touched on some of this last week. Yet we see here, uh, what we see here is that God is telling them to put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and that their fathers had served in Egypt. And they evidently still had those gods because he's telling them to put them away. What an amazing thing it is that men can know their gods do nothing. But what is so appealing about idolatry is that it appeals to the lust of the flesh. It matters not that their gods are ineffective. Their gods don't say anything about their sin. And I touched on this last week as well. 
But when you consider this, when he says, serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth, isn't that a trap that we can fall into as the children of God? Where, yes, we're saved. People ask you, yes, I'm a Christian. And yet, how many things are there, can there be? I hope that there aren't any, but how many things can there be that we served back in the day that we still serve? We still pull out of the closet once in a while, if you will, and serve those gods. And he's saying, now therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth. We have no business dabbling in the sins of the past. What has God done for us? That's what I want us to consider this evening. You can consider what God has done for us on a personal level, and you can consider what God has done for us as in a corporate sense, in a church sense. What a blessing it is to be able to be a part of the Lord's church. To have those brethren that we're in fellowship with, that we can serve together. And uh, God hasn't left us to wonder how it is that we're supposed to serve Him. He's given us an institution through which we can do those things. And he's preserved that. I'll begin, I'll I'll finish with on a personal level, but what has God done for us in a corporate sense? Just as Joshua was speaking to the nation of Israel and he was telling the nation of Israel, this is what God has done for us as a nation. But there is also things for those who truly love the Lord and those who are truly saved. There is a sense in which, and even those families who at that time were benefiting from the goodness of God, um, it applied to them on a personal level as well. But beginning here, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you. This is the part that I love. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. When you consider the Lord's church, it did not get here. We're 2,000 years removed from the words of Jesus when he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The Lord's church did not get here by sheer, surely by the efforts of men. It was God. It, we, we often think about in the book of Acts, when we think about, well, this isn't the, 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 so much the Acts of the Apostles as it is the working of the Holy Spirit, right, in the church. Yeah. It was the Holy Spirit, the power that, the power that came on the day of Pentecost, and, and it's the Holy Spirit that has, has been the driving force behind the church. And uh, But when we think about this, to me it's an amazing thing when you consider all that God has done for His church down through history. God has caused His people to endure the most extreme forms of persecution. Yeah. Think about, just like the children of Israel had to go down into Egypt and they, they, went, they had their challenges and all these things, but God was there and God fought for them. When you consider all that Satan has tried to do to destroy the church, and yet here it is today. 
And I'm not worried about whether the Lord's church is going to be here when he comes back. It's going to be here. He promised the perpe- the, per- what we call the perpetuity of the church. And he said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Well, he was talking to the apostles at that time. And the apostles are dead and gone. They've been dead for 2,000 years. But he's still with us. And he'll be with us after I'm dead and gone if he hasn't come back yet. The Lord's church is going to continue. And so we don't have to worry about that. But it is what God has done for us. Oh, if there was a book written by God. See, it's an interesting thing. We can go back and we can read about the Old Testament saints. And we can read the account of the books of Acts and so forth. And we can see exactly what it was. When the word of God says that God did something for them, there's... There's no doubt that God did that for them. Well, what if there was a book written by God, not the histories of men? Because let's face it, I mean, I have Baptist history books, and they vary a lot. And I know Pastor would agree with this. History books vary a lot. It based on whether that history was written by a Presbyterian or whether it was written by a Baptist. And some of the best Baptist history is written by Lutherans or whatever. I mean... But the thing is, is it's just man's opinion, and not so much opinion, it's his account of what has happened. And we can attribute the great things that have happened in history um, to God. But imagine if God had a written record of what great things he has done for the church. It would be an amazing thing to, to read. If God was in this book concerning the word of God, he could say in in what we just read in Joshua, God said continually, I did this, I did this. And uh, if there was a a book written uh, by God concerning the last 2,000 years of Christian history, he would say, I preserved my word, though men sought to destroy it. Right? Right? Sure, it took the works of men to copy it, distribute it, translate it, die for it, but God was the power behind it all. He would say, I preserved my church against the false teachings of ministers of Satan. It took men to stand up and proclaim the truth. Men wrote clear and concise defenses of the truth. Men died for those truths. It's an amazing thing when you consider How many people have died simply because they believed simple things like they rejected infant baptism and so they were killed? Or they rejected certain uh, things such as transubstantiation and they didn't uh, didn't believe in the worship of Mary or whatever and they, they died for the faith. But yet God would still raise up more people and raise up more people and continue to preserve his church. And how is it that people are saved? The only reason that people are saved is because God sends a minister their way. Right. And so, we, you know, I don't have time to go into it, but we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it takes a preacher to preach. And how shall they preach except they be sent and so forth. And so the very fact that every generation there are more people saved and there will be more people saved is because God is actively sending his ministers to preach the word so that more people would be saved. And so, um, we are the recipients of the wonderful works of God. Um, 
God could say, I empowered those people and I directed those ministers with the Holy Spirit. He has called us away from the gods of our fathers. As Gentile people, are we not recipients of the goodness of God? When you think about it, consider your ancestry and where you come from, Brother Berg. I mean, that's outright paganism. (laughs) Scandinavians? Oh, my word. But, I mean, Europe as a whole, historically, barbaric. Ireland was one of the worst, darkest places on the planet. Uneducated. Oh, I I read a book one time called uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. It's a really good book, but it's really more of a history of uh, um, uh, Patrick and uh, how it is that he went over there and then became a missionary and how how Christianity basically changed that entire uh, island and so forth. It's a very interesting book, uh, How the Irish uh, Saved Civilization. And uh, but it, it is the workings of God. It's what God did in going to this dark place. And so we're only here today in America because God saved a bunch of former pagans over there and then missionaries and people fleeing persecution and so forth came over here and God's God's churches have have been established and and we're the recipients of the goodness of God. It's all all of God. And... uh, From a personal level, at some point, God gave us as individuals the preaching we needed to believe. Think about how it is that you were saved. You heard the gospel from somewhere. You had to if you were saved. And so, um, but God is the one that did that. He led us to a church where we could receive scriptural baptism and be taught properly the doctrines found in the word of God. It was God that did that. And then, um, you know, there's, there's no accidents. I was talking to uh, one of the men up in uh, Deer Park today and talking to him about how he met his wife. And, and it's amazing to me how many times God, just the things that God does for us on a personal level. And you can look back in how God takes two people that are completely lost when they get married, right? And, and uh, completely lost. And then God ends up saving both of them. And, and they... Just living for years in this unsaved relationship, you know, married, unsaved, and then God saves one, and then he saves another, and then they together joyfully serve the Lord, you know, and just it happens over and over and over how we can all look back in our lives, and you can see the work, it's all the working of God. There's no, I say that to say there's no coincidences, you know, that's what's so amazing about that is when Two lost people get together, and they're only thinking about themselves. They're only thinking about things from a worldly plane. But God had an eternal purpose. And so um, there are no accidents. And then if we consider all that God has done for us leading up to our salvation, it's a wonderful thing. It can be overwhelming to think about. But then personally, since our salvation... Think of all that God has done for us since we've been saved. And if we've been saved very long, then that list of what God has done for us begins to add up and add up and add up. And so it's an amazing thing when you consider, if you were just to sit down and start to write out a list of all the good things that God has done for you, maybe we should all do that. 
Just try to write out a list starting from back in the day. And remember, you won't be able to remember all the good things that God has done for you. You really can't. You cannot actually put it down on paper, all the good things that God has done. One of the reasons that you won't ever be able to put down all the good things that God has done is because God has done a lot of things for you that you don't know about. How many times has you, have you had an angel minister to you? you don't even know about. How many times has the Holy Spirit prayed for you when you didn't have the words to pray, but, but, um, but God still was taking care of you? So we can experientially know of all that God has done for us. But there's, there's, there's more that God has done for us that we have no idea He's done for us. And so it's an amazing thing when we think about. So what is this... What, what should we do with this as we dwell on it? We'll go back one chapter to Joshua 23. And we'll just look at this one, for, one verse, verse 14. Joshua 23 and verse 14. He says, And behold this day I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Joshua is in the very last days on this earth, giving his final words to the nation. And he says, You know in your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things. All are come to pass, and not one thing hath failed. On a personal level, we really need to consider all the good things that God has done for us. Did He save us and bless us so that we can go back to our old life? As I already touched on, the challenge for Joshua when he's telling those people is he's like, put away the gods. Put away the gods. And on a personal level, as we consider, and we know in our soul, and we know in our hearts, all the good things that God has done for us. Did he save us so we can dabble in our old life? So we can serve ourselves in our former lusts? This really should be a motivation for us to love him more, serve him more, and put away all those things that would come between us and the Lord. Joshua 24, 14, I'll close with this verse. He concludes his message by saying, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth.